Amen. Uh, let us uh, then turn in the Smaller Forms and Prayers book to page 205. This, um, this morning we have we have a little bit of a of a part two from last week, but for those who are not here, I, I trust it can stand alone as well. Uh, but we we looked at all of, of Genesis 3, especially at the fall itself and the punishment. And now we come back to Genesis 3 and we're looking especially at, at the mercy which is shown in many ways before Adam and Eve are even expelled from the garden. And the brief time between the fall and Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden, we already see mercy in many ways. And so we're, we're back in, in Genesis 3, and for the, our confessional reading, uh, we're saying in Lord's Day 4, but now we're just looking at question and answer 11, and even, even especially the beginning, the first words of question and answer 11. So I'll ask the question, and together let's say question and answer 11. Question, but isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. And then uh, we won't read all of this question and answer but we uh, note that following half dozen question and answers speak to us about the mediator, the only mediator, mediator question and answer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And where does the gospel begin? I'm just looking at the beginning of question and answer 19. How do we come to know this? How do we come to know that Jesus Christ is our only mediator who is both God and man who can pay for sin? The holy gospel tells me God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise, already in the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve were expelled. And uh, so, brothers and sisters, with, uh, with that reading of the confession, we come now to Genesis 3. Uh, we read in entirety last week, we look now especially at the ways we see mercy. So we'll read uh, from uh, verses 8 to 24, and now we're looking especially at 8 to 13, 15, and 20 to 24. And having focused on the fall and the punishment, we now focus on mercy. So we'll begin our reading after the fall, picking up at verse 8, Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then 
the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So far the reading, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Dear congregation, perhaps you have heard the brief summary of the difference between grace and mercy. Grace is when we get a gift that we do not deserve. Mercy is when we do not get a punishment that we do deserve. Now, from the very beginning, God gave many gifts of grace. All of God's very good creation was a wonderful gift of grace. There was no creature, whether man or beast, who deserved to be created by God. God, by his gracious act and creative authority, made all uh, beasts and man as the head of the beasts and all of creation, and it was all very good. It was all beautiful. It was all a wonderful gift of grace. The animals didn't do anything to deserve it. They didn't exist until God made them. Mankind did not do anything to deserve it. We did not exist until God made us. And so from the very beginning, there is much grace in creation. But there was not mercy. There was no need for the mercy of a punishment to not be given because man was made innocent, the state of man's innocency. There was not any sin to be punished when God made man and placed man in the very good 
creation. So while grace is abundantly present already in the first two chapters of Genesis and from the very beginning of creation, it is not until we come to the fall in Genesis 3 that we come to the beginning of mercy. But once sin enters the world, the mercy of God quickly and repeatedly follows. And the mercy of God has been upon us ever since. God's mercy continues to be repeated again and again. God's mercy is repeated again and again before Adam and Eve are even expelled from the garden on the day of the fall. And so our theme this morning as those who live in need of both the mercy and the grace of God is this, respond to the wondrously repeated mercy of God. And we're going to look at at least four ways that we see the mercy of God already in Genesis 3. First, mercy, life. And then mercy from merciful questions. And then mercy, the promise in verse 15. And then mercy, better clothing, given by God in verse 21. So we begin with uh, mercy, uh, life. And this is really seen all throughout this chapter. Uh, Because uh, God told Adam and Eve that in the very day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. Genesis 2, verse 17. And God had every right in justice to immediately make that Death to put Adam and Eve to death right here, right now. And so in verse 8, as soon as God walks into the garden and does not strike Adam and Eve down, there is already the mercy of life. It would have been just for God to strike them down at that moment. But in mercy, God delays the punishment. Not only this, but he speaks to them of life in a number of ways. Now we're going to look uh, at verse 15 uh, in a particular way for our third point. But just for now, let us note that when God speaks of her seed, even as those words are directed to the serpent, God is intentionally speaking that word of punishment against the serpent which is simultaneously a word of promise to Adam and Eve, he's intentionally speaking it in Adam and Eve's hearing. And and we know that Adam and Eve grabbed onto this promise. At least Eve, in in, in chapter 4, verse 13, she, she speaks of this promised seed. They heard this promise. What does it mean when God says she will have a seed? Already now, Adam and Eve know. Death will not come in such an immediate way that they will not have offspring. Her seed. They will be allowed to be fruitful and multiply as they have been commanded to do. Now the next verse in verse 16 speaks again of that life and makes it abundantly clear. Yes, you you will have childbearing, though it will be full of pain and suffering. It will be not as it was before. But it is the mercy of God that there will be childbearing, that there will be one generation and then another and then another. 
until God comes again. And Adam, Adam is glad in this. Adam, uh, Adam rejoices in this. Think about verse 20. They have just received the punishment of God, which we looked at especially last week from verses 14 to 19. What is the first words of Adam after receiving God's punishment? The first words of Adam are to call his wife's name Eve because she is the mother of all living. In other words, we, we, don't, we don't know um, the salvation of, uh, uh, of Adam and Eve, but uh, that Eve is looking for that promised seed in chapter 4 and that Adam after God's punishment, recognizes this certain mercy and does not say, oh Lord God, how could you punish us in such a way? No, the first words out of Adam's mouth after the punishment is laid out is, there's, there's going to be life. My wife's name is Eve. God, in his mercy, is going to allow us to not only live, but to also be the first parents of all mankind. And so you and I and everyone else, uh, we are all descendants of Eve. We are all cousins. It's just a matter of if we're first cousins or fifth cousins or twentieth cousins. We're, we're, we're all from Adam and Eve. God is certainly merciful. Now, as it says in question and answer 11, God is also just. And so they now have bodies of death and they will now die. So verse 19 says, To dust you shall return, but let us know the wondrous mercy of God that those, the words at the end of verse 19, were not the first words that God spoke and that striking Adam and Eve down in death as God justly could have done was not the first thing that God did. It is the mercy of God that we have a life though we sinned against God and the just penalty would have been death immediately. And so uh, God allows Adam and Eve to live and, and not just to live for a short while. God allowed Adam and Eve to have physical life and we're told in Genesis 5 verse 5 Adam lived for 930 years. And then uh, there's not yet any punishment for marrying close relatives. That law does not come until the days of Moses, more than 2,000 years later in Leviticus chapter 18. And so Adam and Eve's children can marry each other and produce the following generations. And history records for us that for the first 2,000 years and more after the fall, uh, many of the earliest descendants had very long lives. Uh, 900 years was not unusual. The lie of evolution says this, that you know, we came from some, some chemical mix-up of soup that eventually gave us monkeys, that eventually gave us mankind, and, and we're just slowly going uphill. The reality is this, that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, but they still had some of the blessings of very good creation, and that they still had some of the health of the very good creation, and that in reality, we are slowly decaying more and more and more as creation continues to groan more and more and more. And so our lives have gone from 900 years being old to 90 years being old. And only in recent times has uh, medical, the combined medical knowledge advanced such that 
average lifespans are longer than they used to be. But even, even with advanced medical knowledge, we, we cannot come anywhere near extending our lives back to 900 years like they used to be. All of the medical knowledge in the world is not nearly enough to return to those long lives. Speaking uh, sometime after creation, about 2,000 years after creation, Jacob uh, was once speaking to the Pharaoh of Egypt, and the Pharaoh of Egypt was, stu- was struck by Jacob's long life and that he was 130 years old. And Jacob said this to the Pharaoh of Egypt in Genesis 47, verse 9. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. So the span of life has now gone down even from that to 80 or 90 years. But brothers and sisters, whether it's 80 years to 90 years or whether it's 800 years to 900 years as it was before decay grabbed hold of the human race, it is all the mercy of God. Any breath you breathe is the mercy of God. Any day you are given to live is the mercy of God. And so there is mercy seen in life which Adam and Eve are allowed to have. Now we come to our second point, mercy in questions. Now the the mercy of life is kind of seen all throughout chapter 3, but now we're looking specifically at verses 9 to 13. And remember, the first words of God are not what he says later at the end of verse 19, to dust you shall return. No, what are the first words of God? After Adam and Eve have disobeyed him, have eaten of the forbidden tree, have entertained the devil, have fallen into sin, have ruined God's beautiful creation, God does not come in and say, how could you ruin the very good creation I made for you? God does not come in and say immediately, to dust you shall return. Now, what is the first thing that God says? Where are you? Now, why does God ask that question? Maybe, maybe you're uh, younger and you like to play hide-and-go-seek. And maybe when you play hide-and-go-seek, sometimes your, your, your parents or your brother or your sister has a really good hiding spot and you cannot find them. You shout out, "Where are you? You, you? you can't, you, you can't, you can't find. You can't find who you're playing hide and go seek with." Now, is that why God asks Adam and Eve where they are? No. God knows all things. God knows exactly where Adam and Eve. God asks the question, where are you? Because God is merciful. And because the first words out of God's mouth after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, plunging the whole creation with them, is a question of mercy which gives them an opportunity to repent. That is how God begins to deal 
with the fallen crown of his very good creation. Now, the response of Adam is only a dodge from the heart of God's question in verse 10. So now God directs two questions to Adam in verse 11. What are they? They are two more merciful questions that give Adam an opportunity to repent But then what's the response of Adam in verse 12? It is only worse. He goes from dodging the issue at hand to now open blame-shifting mode. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's the woman's fault. She gave me the fruit. God, it's your fault. You gave me the woman. At this point, Adam has been given an opportunity to repent, but he has only increased his guilt. And so, rather than giving Adam another question, at this time, God directs the next question to Eve. And again, it's a question which gives an opportunity to repent. As we spoke of last week, we've all fallen in Adam. He's our federal head. But Adam and Eve and the serpent were all to blame. But what does Eve do? We might say that her response is not as poor as Adam's, but it still falls far short of any true repentance. And she only continues the blame-shifting game. Now, notice something. In verse 14, God does not ask the serpent any questions. Why is that? There, there, are, there are two higher creatures, one in the visible realm, mankind, and one in the invisible realm of heaven is where they were first made. And the salvation and the judgment of men and angels are both different. Angels are, are not saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The angels who dwell with God have been with God from the beginning. They never fell. The judgment of angels is different than the judgment of mankind. The judgment on the fallen angels is immediate and permanent. The serpent does not get any questions because the serpent is an angel and he is already judged as a fallen angel. There is no opportunity for fallen angels to repent because God has chosen in his justice, and it's just in both cases, to deal with men and angels in a different way. Now, the judgment of angels is different. The the serpent has no opportunity to repent. He is already judged. The salvation is also different. The Apostle Paul, speaking about that different salvation, tells us that of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, this is something, 1 Peter 1, verse 12, into which angels long to look. There is something especially beautiful about the salvation of mankind. Because while we were yet sinners, while we are enemies to God, while we all have been plunged into sin as children of wrath, but God, by His mercy, and grace 
gives us the opportunity to repent and gives us the way of salvation through His only Son, Jesus Christ. And God's mercy, as in the title of a, of a book in our church library, it comes in waves, one after another after another. The waves of God's mercy comes again and again and again. And it comes again and again right here in Genesis 3. And it comes again and again and again in many different ways, communicated to us as many different, uh, in many different forms. And it comes again and again all throughout Scripture. And it comes again and again in, in your life. It comes this morning. And it comes again in the form of a question this morning. Have, have you repented and trusted in Jesus Christ as your only Lord and Savior? This, this congregation of Jesus Christ is a wave of mercy. There is salvation if you repent and trust. And though the waves of mercy do continue to come again and again, if you have not received that wave of mercy, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, because you do not know what tomorrow brings. Though the mercy of God is repeated again and again, today is the day to see the repeated mercy of God and to respond to the mercy of God. And if you have responded, then let the beautiful, repeated mercy of God roll over you one wave after another. Because we all need God's mercy every day. And it is all what Christ has done. And that takes us to our third point, which... So if we're using the illustration of, of waves of mercy that just come again and again like the waves against the shore, what is Genesis 3 verse 15? Genesis 3 verse 15 is the first crashing wave, the greatest wave that you have ever seen. It is the first crashing wave of mercy in the Scripture. And so we sometimes call Genesis 3 verse 15 the, the Proto-Evangelium, which is just the Latin for the first Gospel. It's the first crashing wave of mercy. And it is spoken to the serpent, but it is spoken in the hearing of Adam and Eve. And it is simultaneously the serpent's punishment and a promise of grace to Adam and Eve. The serpent will not be victorious. Your seed, plural, will have a singular, his, who crushes the serpent. And who is the one who crushes the serpent? This is the first promise of the Gospel. This we see especially, this wave reaches its crest at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where Christ does die on the cross. He suffers great pain. His heel is bruised. But it is not the victory of the serpent. It is the victory of our Savior because He rose again from the dead. He died not in, in defeat, but He died to defeat sin. And He died to defeat death. And the head of the serpent is crushed. As the great wave of the Gospel reaches its crest at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the first 
gospel. Spoken already, God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. After the fall, before Adam and Eve are even expelled from the garden. This is the good news. This is, this is the first promise of the good news. And there had to be the promise of the good news because apart from Jesus Christ, we would still stand in death and dying we would die. But in Jesus Christ, we have spiritual life, we have the pledge of resurrection life, and we share in the victory of the whole seed, finally, crushing the head of the serpent. And so the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the crashing wave of mercy. It reaches its crest at the cross and it crashes to the shore and breaks down the very gates of hell as all of God's people share in the victory of the crushing of the head of the serpent through Christ. Well, there is at least one more wave of mercy in Genesis 3. So now we come to our fourth point, better clothing. Now, this, this is mercy. We're looking especially at verse 21. It is messy mercy. Now back in verse 7, Adam and Eve, they attempted to make their own clothes. Now in verse 20, clothes of a different type and a different material are provided for them. It's no longer a pitiful attempt to sew fig leaves together, however Adam and Eve tried to do that. They now have durable clothing made from animal skins, whatever animal God chose to use. It is no longer a loincloth. You see that word at the end of verse 7. God now makes for them a better type of clothing. The, the word, the Hebrew word for garment in verse 20 is sometimes translated as tunic. It is sometimes translated as, as robe in the Old Testament. This is better clothing. It's more durable. It's more modest. It's more perhaps even royal. And it's all part of the wonderful mercy of God. That though the earth is now full of thorns and thistles, Adam and Eve are allowed to live and they're given the basic necessities of life. Their clothing is made for them by God and they will be able to get food even as they're expelled from the garden. Now, I said this is a messy mercy. Let's think about that for a moment. Animals were not used in this way before the fall. There was, as we spoke about last week, no animal death before the fall. But in this fallen world, dominion now includes various messy ways in which the animal kingdom serves mankind. John Calvin once said it this way, quote, now impelled by a new necessity, they put some animals to death. End of quote. Now, after the fall, there are at least three plain ways that animals serve mankind through their death. First, 
animal skins can be used for clothing. Second, animals can, after the fall and up until the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, be put to death as a symbolic sacrifice to God. And these sacrifices are seen all throughout the Old Testament. We, we may have an implication that the first sacrifice is right here in Genesis 3.20. But if, if this is not the first sacrifice, we do not have to go very far. Genesis 4, verse 4, Abel, by God's grace, offers up a pleasing animal sacrifice to God. And then a third purpose is that through animal death, animal meat is now a means of food. It was not in Genesis 1, verse 30, but it is now after the fall, and we're explicitly told that in Genesis chapter 9. Proper dominion recognizes these purposes, even as it does not abuse them. But brothers and sisters, this is a messy mercy. And I can, I can talk about that very easily. I can, I can very plainly illustrate that for us. I have a vivid memory of the first time I ever saw a deer being gutted. I, was, I think I was eight years old. And uh, it, it's messy. It's part of God's mercy on this world. Impelled by a new necessity, they put animals to death. And there are a number of ways in which the death of animals now serves mankind with dominion over the beasts. But it is a bloody mess. Now, brothers and sisters, where does, where does this take us? Just as the first crashing wave of mercy reaches its crest at the cross, so messy mercy reaches its crest at the cross. And remember that up until the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the majority of the times we have reference to animal death all throughout the Old Testament is the symbolic sacrifices of animals. the spilling of blood over and over and over again because without the spilling of blood there is no remission of sins all pointing to the one who is not a mere creature but who is both God and man who willingly gives himself up for the messy mercy of the cross the cross is the cross is not it is beautiful because of what Christ did there but but the cross is not beautiful in the sense of it's the picture of, of great pain and suffering and the spilling of blood and the very wrath of God being poured out. It is, it is beautiful, messy, but we can say in a real way that it is the crest of the messy mercy of God. And as mankind plunged this world into death, it was necessary that we would be saved by the messy mercy of Christ's death on the cross. Brothers and sisters, from the day of the fall and every day since, the mercy of God has been plainly seen. 
and the waves of God's mercy have already reached their crest at the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May we respond to the wondrously repeated mercy of God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, our gracious and compassionate God,